Open your Bibles uh, once again to Zephaniah. We'll be in chapter 2 tonight. And tonight, we, uh, just like last week, are focused in on humility. Uh, The humility that would obey God because it believes God here in Zephaniah 2, 4 and following. We'll finish chapter 2 tonight. But this all has to do with the quality that scripture calls humility. Humility is becoming less and less of a virtue in our day. To be brash and sarcastic and belittling of others is esteemed. To have a a quick wit that can put others down and embarrass people even is seen as a good quality. We do well to remember what Proverbs 11, 12 says, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense. But a man of understanding remains silent. Proverbs eleven twelve offers that wisdom because that is not a sign of humility to speak quickly, to belittle others, to exalt self over others. Even among those who esteem humility, though, this virtue is often misunderstood. Even in our context, we can misunderstand what humility, true humility, biblical humility actually is. Oftentimes, we confuse humility with speaking softly instead of forcefully about certain issues. As if a humble parent is one who never uh, raises the voice to communicate seriousness of a command. We're not talking about uncontrolled yelling, but to simply speak forcefully and communicate a seriousness, we can confuse humility with not doing that. Or what about a lack of certainty? Even in theological circles, you just press the right buttons on certain doctrines and people will accuse you perhaps of being Arrogant because you're certain about theological issues that they haven't yet worked out. And so their humility is confused with just not being sure. Actually, humility is the opposite. Humility takes God at his word. And once the mind understands what God has said, then humility becomes certain about those things, not on its own authority, but because God has spoken. We can also confuse humility with unhindered affirmation, just affirming everyone as if God is, uh, or as, as if however others choose to live is okay. This is popular in our day. You know, your truth is your truth. Love is love, as we hear so much about just a carte blanche affirmation of others is seen as humble somehow. Or even, what about emphasizing grace only? Solely emphasizing grace is often seen as humility. As if God is only gracious, only love, only ever merciful. 
And so not using strong words of warning, treating warnings biblically as if they're unimportant, as if in relationships to strongly warn someone is perceived as arrogant, unneeded, unwarranted. That is, that is not humility. None of those things is biblical humility. I appreciate what Thomas Watson says in his book, The Godly Man's Picture. He says, a man may be humbled and not humble. A sinner may be humbled by affliction. His condition is low, but not his disposition. A godly man is not only humbled, but humble. His heart is as low as his condition. A humble soul is emptied of all swelling thoughts of himself. A humble man has lower thoughts of himself than others can have of him. And this is the case because he believes what God says about him. You, Christian, if you are truly humble, if we are truly humble people, then we think adequately low of ourselves because we recognize the truth about what God has said about us. Even in our duties to believe what God says about you as you carry out faithfully your duties before the Lord, even that would be a cause for humiliation in God's people. Why? Because as Jesus says in Luke seventeen ten, the servant, after he has done all that is required of him, still says he's unworthy. He is just merely an unworthy slave who has only done what is required. So on your best day, when you have seen from Scripture, meditated from Scripture on what God requires... The Christian doesn't even use that as an occasion to be full of himself or to think highly of himself because he recognizes, I am just a slave who is only doing what I ought to be doing. We could never do more than what God requires or ascribe more worth to him than he is worthy of. And so all of our best acts of obedience are merely occasions for humble praise. This passage that we're in tonight gives motivation for the kind of humility that Zephaniah has been putting forward. The kind of humility that hears about the coming day of wrath and after believing that word of warning about God's coming day of wrath the humility that would be gathered, believe this decree before it takes effect, and possess the kind of urgency that Zephaniah is trying to impart to his audience, that humble person is given in these following verses, 4 through 15 of Zephaniah chapter 2, reasons for laying hold to that kind of humility. The kind of humility, chapter 2, verse 3, that would seek Yahweh, that would do his ordinances, that would seek righteousness, seek humility, even to be hidden 
when that day of God's anger comes, that kind of humility, Zephaniah is motivating his audience to lay hold of that. And so for us, reading this some 2,600 years later, really get to look back at the motivation articulated by this prophet and do the very same thing with his words, to be motivated to lay hold of humility. That's the goal of this passage. And really, the prophet gives us two reasons to lay hold of humility. And simply put, they boil down to this. The reasons to lay hold of humility come down to the destruction of surrounding sinful nations and the fulfillment of God's ancient promises. The destruction of surrounding sinful nations and the fulfillment of God's ancient promise, promises. This is the, the point of Zephaniah's message. He has been, he has been putting forward, the, the book captures this point, that only a humble, sincere, or humble, faithful remnant would escape the universal destruction of the day of the Lord and experience its unparalleled blessing. There is a day coming called the day of God, the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. There are two phases to that day. First, universal destruction. That's what we've been describing thus far up to this point in the book. The entire world is affected by God's wrath when this day comes. But that's not all this day is about, as we will soon see. Here in glimpses in chapter 2 and then in full by the end of the book in chapter 3, there is unparalleled blessing coming to the world on also still the day of the Lord. This is in that same era, that same time. Unparalleled blessing, blessing like this world has never known before. Similar to, but greater than, the garden. In the garden, you had God as king, God as present among his two people, Adam and Eve, in intimate, peaceful fellowship with them. But they did not have God as savior. That day is still coming. When God, in a similar way, dwells among his people as king, as present, but also as Savior. That's coming. In order to see that day, the only ones who will see that day must today be characterized by humility. The kind of humility that would gather yourself, the kind of humility that would seek Yahweh, the kind of humility that would seek righteousness, the kind of humility that seeks humility and does what God says because it believes him. We get motivations to lay hold of that kind of humility. Just look at verse 4. Follow along as I read. For, for Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites, the word of Yahweh is against you. O 
Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you so that there will be no inhabitant. So the seacoast will be pastures with caves for shepherds and folds for flocks. And the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They will pasture on it. In the houses of Ashkelon, they will lie down at evening. For Yahweh their God will care for them and restore their fortune. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon with which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon, like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them, and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. This they will have in return for their pride, because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh will, terri- will be terrifying to them, for he will starve all the gods of the earth, and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. You also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. Flocks will lie down in her midst. All beasts will range in herds. Both the pelican and the hedgehog will lodge in the tops of her pillars. Birds will sing in the window. Desolation will be on the threshold, for he has laid bare the cedar work. This is the exultant city which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. How she has become a desolation, a resting place for beasts. Everyone who passes by her will hiss, And wave his hand in contempt. Here, Zephaniah is describing the destruction of surrounding sinful nations. And this is one of the reasons that he lays before us to lay hold of humility. Just notice in verse 4, this passage begins with the conjunction for. For it's explaining or giving a reason for what has come just before this. Namely, those commands that appear in verses 1 through 3. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame. And verse 3, seek Yahweh, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. The reward, if you will, for obeying these commands is that at the end of verse three, you will be hidden again. Perhaps that word of hope, there's still hope to be hidden when this day comes in the day of Yahweh's anger. And so why do these things? Why obey the commands that would warrant you being called the humble of the land Why? 
because, verse 4, for, and then unfolds the destruction of the nations. That's why. Because the surrounding sinful nations will be destroyed. All of these nations that have made themselves enemies of Israel and thereby enemies of God have refused to submit to Yahweh, have refused to obey him, have not sought the God of Israel, in part due to Israel's poor example, of course, but nevertheless, they are not worshipers of Yahweh. They will be destroyed, all of the enemies of God. We'll get here next time, but in chapter 3, even Israel herself as a nation does not escape this judgment. Again, particular to Israel, destruction is coming because of her sin. So no sinful people will escape this day. When this day comes, there's a small portion of people who fit the description, the humble of the earth, the humble of the land, who escape wrath, they're the humble, faithful remnant. They don't see wrath. They see the blessing that's coming. But because all others, these sinful nations included, outside of Israel, in chapter 2, because they will be destroyed, this becomes further motivation to then Seek the Lord to be hidden in the day of Yahweh's anger. And so the first nation that we encounter is the Philistines. The Philistines are the first nation in view. This, this map may be not so helpful. Now that I'm looking at it. You can't really see. The, the text is, is pretty small. Here's what you have. You have four nations identified in this passage, and they are all surrounding Israel. So just between the continent of Africa and over where where we would find Israel, that green portion uh, just along the Mediterranean Sea, just east of the, the Mediterranean Sea at the top left corner of the map, just beside Africa you have this small sliver of the nation of Israel. Um, as of the late 1940s, receiving a portion of that land again, uh, just after World War II, in God's providence, uh, able to lay claim to a portion of the land again. But here, uh, in something like six, the late 620s B.C., uh, this is a map, late 620s BC is when Zephaniah is writing. This map is of the Assyrian Empire between the 9th and 7th centuries BC. And uh, sort of that area that's highlighted, just expanding uh, just from the tip of, of Africa over into uh, Europe. You have uh, the Assyrian Empire. During, during those, those times, 9th to 7th century BC, uh, the map is helpful because you get all four nations mentioned in this passage on the map. The first is the Philistines. Since Judah is the only nation left, then you have the Philistines would have, who are just west of 
of, um, of Israel, of, of the remaining tribe of Judah. So they are just on the seacoast of the, the Mediterranean Sea. And you'll see that this in verse 6 is highlighted because that territory that belongs at this time when Zephaniah is writing, that territory belonging to the Philistines will one day be pastures, caves for shepherds, and the coast, verse 7, will belong not to the Philistines, but the remnant of the house of Judah. So this is where they are situated. And this is what Zephaniah is saying is coming in the future for the Philistines. Just notice in verse 4, you have four cities identified, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. These are four of the five main cities of the Philistines. If that map was bigger, you could, you could identify them there. But these cities belonging to the Philistines, God tells us what's in store. So this nation that is west of Judah is identified by its cities, and then the destruction is laid out for that nation. Notice the destruction-type words in this passage. Abandoned, verse 4. Desolation. Driven out. Uprooted. This is what's in store for this nation. They'll be abandoned. They'll be left desolate. Even these prominent, busy cities would not be inhabited. The people in those places would be driven out, even at noon. And and commentators differ about what this means exactly, but the, the fact that this would even happen at midday I think seems to indicate the surprise of when this nation would be desolated. No invading army, no warrior uh, would have any kind of cover at noon in the middle of the day. And so usually attacks didn't take place at midday. But even this nation's humbling, the destruction of the nation would be at noon. There's nothing they can do about it. Even from a obvious attack. And I think the way to take this is just in the context, the, the attack itself is not particular to any other nation, but probably Yahweh himself. So they would be caught off guard, not expecting this day God to or anyone to war against their nation in the middle of the day. So this would come suddenly. Even, uh, I think, in the New Testament, Paul, again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, picks up on the suddenness of the day of the Lord, that it's coming when it is not expected on people who have convinced themselves that they are going to be in safety and at peace and there is no destruction coming. Well, this is not the case. They would even be driven out at noon and even Ekron would be uprooted. This, in verse 5, there's a a woe, another destruction-type word. This word 
like a curse on this nation. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites, another word for the, the Philistine people or the Canaanites. The word of Yahweh, his decree is against you, O Canaanites, land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you, is the word. Again, another destruction type word. So this nation clearly has no hope when God chooses to destroy They will not last. They will not survive. It is hopeless for them. Again, the thrust of the passage is for those listening, because remember, the Philistines did not get this prophecy. That's not the audience. Even though it's addressed to them, it is before the the Israelites, the, the people of Judah, Because of what would happen, this utter destruction coming on this nation, Israel is being instructed to possess the kind of humility that will hide them on the day of the Lord. This destruction of this nation west of them is motivation. It doesn't stop there because he then moves on to another nation. We'll skip verses 6 and 7 for a second. Because we'll come back to them. That's the word of blessing. The next nation in view, though, is in verse 8. Two nations, actually. And they are nations just east of Israel. Both the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites were a perpetual thorn in the side of Israel, of Judah. Throughout the Old Testament, they're always making war. And this was due to... Israel's own fault for not continuing to drive out the nations. When Joshua on his deathbed commissioned them to continue because there was still remaining land. In his old age, he divides the land, tells them to whom, what allotments belong, what tribes, and then dies with the words ringing in their ears, continue to take over the land, worship God, drive out the idolaters, they don't listen. And so here, centuries later, those nations still remain. These two nations, God says, I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon, which, with which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. So here you have con- just different than the destruction foretold about the Philistines, you have the actual reasons for the, for the wrath that's coming to these nations, the Moabites, the Ammonites. Uh, particularly, he calls these tauntings and revilings. Tauntings and revilings are the two charges in view. They've reviled Israel The idea is that they've abused or ridiculed Israel and even participated in removing Israel from the land. This was sinful. God indicts this nation for the role that they've played in doing these things. And just notice in verse 8, the revilings, the tauntings, 
the abuse, these were all symptoms of their arrogance. Verse 8, the end of verse 8. They become arrogant against their territory. Pride, arrogance, a lack of humility, the very thing that Zephaniah is calling his audience to, was what was practiced by these pagan nations. So in other words, don't be like them. Don't possess the kind of arrogance that caused them to be your enemies, Judah. These two nations, of of all the nations mentioned, this is the only section that includes two different nations. So Moab and Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Why should these two nations go together? This is where knowing your Old Testament history comes in handy. Just being familiar with prior revelation yields excellent rewards. Look at verse 9. It compares what will happen to these two nations to another two nations that you're probably more familiar with. Therefore, as I live, declares Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom. And the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. So Sodom and Gomorrah are what these two nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites, would one day be like. Now, why are these two nations compared to these two nations? And it's because of what we see in Genesis 19. So just go back to Genesis 19. We'll take a few minutes to look at the similarities between these two nations because they arise in the same context in Genesis 19. Both of these nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites, are descendants of Lot. And you remember what happened to Lot. God purposed to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because he couldn't even find 10 righteous people in those cities. And because of that, even despite Abraham's good attempts to intercede for where Lot was dwelling, they still had wrath come to them. Lot, though he escaped with his two daughters from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, so here Lot did not experience, and Lot's daughters even escaped the destruction experienced by Sodom and Gomorrah. Just notice in verse 30, and I'll just briefly read the the account. And so you can see exactly where these two nations come from. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. And he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come in after us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. 
On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine again tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. So these two daughters, having escaped these sexually immoral, perverse cities, picked up some of the bad habits. They practiced a form of sexual immorality. And the two nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites, that came from them were the descendants. They originated from the incestuous acts of Lot and his daughters. And so these two nations are in view when Zephaniah predicts the destruction of those nations. And he says that they would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. He says that they would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. The the point is that though Moab and the Ammonites, in a sense, they escaped the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah the first time. But later, in the end, they would end up experiencing the same destruction as those nations originally escaped. This is what God has in view for them. And even the the similarity is further uh, highlighted because those two nations, Sodom and Gomorrah, when God rained down fire on those nations, all they became good for was desert land and salt pits. Just back in Zephaniah, God would so destroy these two nations that they would suffer a similar fate. Verse 9, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. You, re- you remember Lot's wife, when she turned back, she turns into what? Pillar of salt. So she suffered a similar fate as those lands, as those people And here again, the descendants of Lot, of his daughters who escaped the destruction, would eventually experience the same fate because of their arrogance, because of their taunting, their reviling, their abuse. Just notice in verse 9, the certainty of this. There's a word of certainty in verse 9. God says, as I live, declares Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, this would happen. That is a certain word. How certain is this destruction that will come upon this nation? As certain as God's own existence, as I live, he says, 
Does God exist? Well, then certainly this will happen. This is even as certain as God's own sovereignty, the fact that God is the one who can declare and ensure that something comes about. As I live, declares Yahweh. As certainly as God is sovereign, God is in control. He can say it happens and it will most assuredly happen. That's how certain the destruction of these nations is. Even as certain as God's own vengeance is what's in view, because he calls himself Yahweh of hosts or adequately translated Yahweh of armies. When God makes war, his vengeance is in view. As certainly as God is a God of vengeance, all wrongdoing will be punished. This destruction will come on the nations in view. And even as certain as God's election, look at what he calls himself in verse nine, the God of whom Israel, his people, he is still the God of Israel. This is a nation without shame, and he still claims them the God of Israel. Not because Israel has earned any claim to God, not because they practically act like they are his people and like he is their God, but he is the God of Israel because he has chosen to be the God of Israel and for no other reason ultimately. God made a promise to Abraham to Abraham's descendants, Israel, and so he still maintains his own faithfulness. He is the God of Israel. That's going to be further highlighted. His own commitment to his faithful promises is going to be highlighted before we finish this passage. And so as certainly as God is these things, destruction is coming to these nations. This they will have, verse 10, in return for their pride because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of Yahweh of hosts. Do you think of pride that way? Do you think of pride as that dangerous, as that perilous to your own soul? Man, there were, there were nations, there were people who were arrogant before God and against his people. This is the kind of ruin that arrogant, prideful people deserve. You need any other motivation to not be proud? Don't be like these nations. Even as you look around in the world, people who don't believe God, they don't seek him, they don't care what God thinks. Don't be like those people. Seek God, seek righteousness, seek humility. Make your life's pursuit obedience to and knowledge of his character and his commands. The third nation just south in Africa, just south of, um, of Israel, even far south, is the Ethiopians or the Cushites. Verse 12, you also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. Next. That's it. The, the swiftness of the, the word that's said about them just mirrors the swiftness of the destruction that's going to come. They would be pierced through or slain by my sword. That is for 
the Ethiopians. And again, another nation that was often at war with God's people. And then the final nation, we've addressed the nation, the Philistines west, the Moabites and the Ammonites east, and now the Cushites or the Ethiopians south. The last direction, north, is what's in view. And this is for the Assyrians, 13 through 15. This would have been the world power at the time. So he's saving the best for last. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh, that's the capital city, a desolation parched like the wilderness. Flocks will lie down in her midst. All beasts will range in herds. Both the pelican and the hedgehog will lodge in the tops of her pillars. Birds will sing in the window. Desolation will be on the threshold, for he has laid bare the cedar work. This is what he's describing is a, a city currently well inhabited, strong, victorious, powerful, so vacant that the wildest of animals can find homes in the most obvious of places. Houses in the, in the windows, no one's there. Pillars, even the most prominent structures. You have animals like pelicans and hedgehogs, even, uh, you know, one of these is hard to pin down what exactly is in view. But these animals, these wild animals that are clearly not welcomed where people live, they find a comfortable home there. Wild beasts range in full herds there. They're not captive. They're not domesticated. They just range freely. This would have been an unbelievable word heard by this nation. If they would have heard the prophecy of Zephaniah about their nation, they would have thought, you're crazy. That'll never happen. What are you talking about? Verse 15 just describes the proud claims of the inhabitants of this place, of this nation. They're called the exultant city, and they're said to dwell securely. They're not afraid of disaster. They say in their heart something similar to what God says about himself. How arrogant. Look at the claim made by this nation and how it mirrors what God says about himself in other places of scripture. I am. And there is no one besides me. God says that. And yet we find the same words here on the lips of a pagan, unbelieving nation. She has become a desolation, Zephaniah prophesies, a resting place for beasts. Everyone who passes by her will hiss and wave his hand in contempt. What you have in this destruction, this prophecy about the destruction of nations You have a simple word that destruction is coming without a reference to the time. So I think what we have in view is the day of the Lord primarily 
that this destruction certainly would come on them at least by then. But some of these prophecies, especially and particularly to the Assyrians, have already been fulfilled. One author says about the Assyrian dynasty, Assyrian to Assyria took a meteoric fall in 626 BC, only about 25 years after Ashur Banipal had extended Assyrian influence to Upper Egypt. That's a part of the map that you that you saw already. Nebuchadnezzar, founder of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, seized control of the city of Babylon by 612 BC. This is not even 20 years after this prophecy. By 612 BC, Nineveh, the great capital city of Assyria, fell. The Assyrian superpower, which had dominated Near East politics for over 100 years, was gone, never to rise again. So you have the fulfillment, at least of these words, in the lifetime of Zephaniah's audience, just shortly after. And what about some of these other nations? Well, the Moabites and the Ammonites are another nation that have already experienced this kind of destruction. John Calvin records in his commentary on this passage that both the Moabites and the Ammonites were subdued and led captive by Nebuchadnezzar about four or six years after the captivity of Judah. They were afterwards partially restored, especially the children of Ammon, as Tobiah was their chief in the time of Nehemiah. They were plundered, as recorded in 1 Maccabees, that's an apocryphal book. Of Moab, we read nothing at that time, but it appears that for ages it has been desolate. No one, says this traveler, of, uh, he, he records another explorer just prior to Calvin. No one, says Burkhard, the traveler, of the ancient cities of Moab exists as tenanted by man. And he speaks of their entire desolation. And then another modern traveler, Sitsin, a Russian, speaking of Amman, says, All this country, form, formerly so populous, is now changed into a vast desert. So if you didn't believe Zephaniah in his day, how much more culpable are we prior to Zephaniah, now after Zephaniah, excuse me, to actually believe these words and do the very things that he's seeking to motivate his audience to do. Seek humility. One commentator says, the nations are exceedingly dull in learning how greatly they displease the Lord when they deal in pride against the nation whom he has chosen as his medium for worldwide blessing. And that is Israel. God has chosen them to be that despite their failure to fulfill that God still keeps his promises. And so that becomes the second reason and final reason for laying hold of humility, the kind of humility that hides on the day of the Lord. We must lay hold to that humility 
And the second motivation is the fulfillment of God's ancient promises. The fulfillment of God's ancient promises. Verses 6 and 7, as well as verse 9 and 11, have the fulfillment of God's ancient promises in view. And then later, at the end of the book, in chapter 3, we get those in full. We get to read about them in a, a greater way. But here, just, he just mentions these things. The Philistines, the land that belonged to them, verse 6 and 7, says will one day belong not to the Philistines, but the house of Judah. Verse 6 again says, so the seacoast will be pastures with caves for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast will be for the remnant, notice, not the nation who is without shame, but for what's left, a remnant of those people, they would actually own this land. And this is particular, verse 7 says, to the house of Judah, the seacoast would belong to the house of Judah. You can read uh, Genesis 49, when Israel, Jacob, makes those promises to his sons, there's uh, land references there. None of them, the seacoast at least, have to do with Judah. And then you could read Joshua 13 and following when the land is actually divided by lot. Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast into the lap. Every decision is from Yahweh. So he oversaw the apportioning of the land through the casting of lots in Joshua's day. And even then, when, it, when Judah, the tribe of Judah, was given their allotment, they did not own the coast. So this is a promise of a new day never before seen in Israel's history, when the seacoast would belong to the house of Judah specifically. That means that at least anticipates a reallotment of the land. But what will stand is what they'll do in that land. They will pasture on it. That's why it's important that the seacoast would be pastures, that land would be made adequate for shepherds and flocks. That's what Israel has been throughout their history, shepherds. And they would actually own the houses of Ashkelon. They will, verse 7 says, lie down at evening. Um, at times, evening has been a dangerous time to just set up shop outside. You can read Judges 19 and what happens to people who stay outside at night. Not good things. Carrie's familiar. <laughs> yeah. Well, this would be a time then when they could even lie down. They could feel secure at a time when security would not be normal. That means there's a new day coming. Why? For Yahweh their God will care for them and restore their fortune. When God himself is their shepherd, when he himself pastures them, cares for them, then they would be perfectly safe and at ease. And at the same time, when he does that, he would restore their fortune. Wow, there's tangible, material, even blessing coming 
to this people. Why is this not a prosperity gospel? Quickly, this is not a prosperity gospel because just notice what it takes to see that day. It takes, going all the way back up into the context, humility. It takes humility. It takes a seeking the Lord, not seeking the prosperity. It takes a genuine seeking the Lord, seeking righteousness, seeking humility. People who are preaching a health and wealth gospel are not seeking those things. They're seeking health and wealth. And God is the means to the end that they really love. Here, it's the other way around. You seek the Lord. You seek humility. You seek righteousness in this life. If you can be content to live under God's authority now, then you're living for delayed gratification, not having your cake and eating it too in this life. You're waiting for a coming day where unparalleled blessing is the promise. No carnal person who does not believe God is going to live for him now waiting for an eternal promise. And so he can put these things before them, even the fruit of faith, trusting that only those who genuinely believe the Lord, who would genuinely humble themselves, would obey these commands now and be content to live for a restored fortune in a coming day. Also, Verses uh, 9 and 11, at the end of 9, again, the remnant is what's in view. The remnant of my people will plunder them, and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. He has a portion of the people in view. This is why when Jesus could show up, John the Baptist showed up in the New Testament, he could call them foolish for thinking that it meant something, that they were children of Abraham by blood. That doesn't mean anything. You don't even possess the righteousness that Abraham possessed, not by declaration, not by practice, not justifying righteousness, not practical righteousness. And you think you're going to be saved because you're a mere descendant. Don't you know the promises are for the remainder, for a portion of God's people, a remnant? They would be the ones who plunder these nations and actually inherit those nations, the lands and the fortunes that those nations at this time possessed. Only the humble of the land would see those blessings. Only those who humble themselves would one day inherit what's coming to Israel. This is what Zephaniah is preaching this in this day, verse 11, this would be a day when every man from his own place bowed down to Yahweh. Why? Because he is the king of all the earth. Not just by right, as he currently is by right, but by tangible practice and placement, he would set himself up as the king of the earth one day. This is what's in view. I think that's what's in view in verse 11 when it says Yahweh will be terrifying to them. Um, I think better translated, he would be fearsome to them because of what he would actually do when he starves or uh, humbles all the gods of the earth so that they are no more. 
and he sets himself up as the only God of the earth, then he would receive worldwide worship is what's in view in verse 11. Notice it's all the coastlands of the nations, that's the extremities of every nation, would bow down to him Everyone, now you have people in those nations at the extremities, would bow down and worship Yahweh from his own place. Worldwide worship would belong to the one and only God and King of all the earth. Just flip over to chapter 3. Because this day that Zephaniah is describing in short, he here explains in full This would happen, verse 15 of chapter 3, when Yahweh takes away his judgments against his people, when he has cleared away their enemies, the king of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst on that day. That's now it's realized. He is the king, he is Yahweh, and he is present in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. You will never again fear evil. In that day, verse 16, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a victorious warrior. One day, this is what would be realized. God, in in the person of Jesus Christ, his Messiah, his King, in Jerusalem, the capital of the world, he is ruling and reigning Amongst his faithful, humble remnant. Do you want to see that day? Do you want to inherit that kingdom that is coming? Once all the nations have been destroyed and every evildoer removed from them, that includes by implication America, if we're around. All the sinners will be removed and these Sinful nations will be humbled. Do you want to escape the wrath that's coming and see the kingdom that's coming as well as the blessing coming with it? What must you be? You must be humble. Sincerely, the kind of humility that only God's spirit could produce. You must possess that. I want to close with this. Just flip over to Matthew 5. This is the same message that Jesus preached. Who inherits the kingdom? To whom do the blessings of the kingdom belong? Well, we need to look no further than the Beatitudes for that. To whom do the blessings of the kingdom belong? Jesus says, being the ultimate prophet, what the other former prophets said before him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In verse 5, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. That word from the passage Jesus is quoting, Psalm 37.10, is the same word Zephaniah picks up in chapter 2, verse 3. The humble, ana, those who are characterized by humility. Are you gentle? Are you meek? Are you humble? Have you humbled yourself under the authority of God? Do you practically walk out that humbling that God has accomplished in your life as you seek him and seek righteousness and seek humility? And if you do, then praise the Lord, the kingdom belongs to you. Today by right, one day by full, tangible realization. So we must lay hold to this kind of humility as we escape the the destruction that's coming and then inherit those unparalleled blessings that currently exist in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus will one day bring to planet earth. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for these promises. We would never think to promise these things. We would never think to accomplish them and lay hold of them in the ways that you have. You have put a standard before us so impossible that it only could be accomplished by you at work producing faith in our hearts. And so I pray that we would believe you and that as we humbly embrace the truthfulness of your authoritative words, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of the gospel, claiming practically with our life that you love to save sinners. And we ask all these things in the name of the one and only King Jesus. Amen.